In the previous passage in 1 Kings, you remember that Nathan went to Bathsheba to tell her the news that Adonijah was staging a coup by claiming that he was now the king and throwing a banquet to cement the idea in the minds of the people of Jerusalem and thus throughout all Israel. You remember that King David, at the beginning of chapter 1 of 1 Kings, he was pictured there as an enfeebled old man near the end of his life. And that was probably the reason that Adonijah thought that it was safe for him to assert himself, to try to take control of the kingdom. And so the Lord drove Nathan into action, who went and informed Bathsheba of Adonijah's rebellion. And then Nathan gave Bathsheba a plan of action, telling her to go and tell David what was going on. And of course, when Bathsheba arrives at David's bedchamber, he is oblivious to all that is going on. And so when she got there, Bathsheba reminded David of the oath that he made to her, saying, My Lord, you swore to your servant by Yahweh your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And after she had finished with what she had to say, Nathan came into the king's bedchamber. She withdrew. Nathan came in, and he corroborated what Bathsheba had told him. And Nathan ended his speech with this, to David with this question. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king? And you've not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? And now we come to the moment of truth for David. Perhaps better a test. Now, some of you who went into the military, I don't know if it was the same for you as it was for me, but I went into the Marine Corps at the beginning of boot camp. Before we'd been assigned to any kind of battalion, any kind of platoon, we had a moment of truth. That's what they called it. It was ours. Of truth, and we had to disclose to those Marines, those those people who were in charge of us in that room. We had to disclose, disclose to them anything that we had not disclosed on the papers when we were enlisting. Any kind of drug use, arrests, anything like that that we had failed to, excluded, forgotten about, forgotten about. We were supposed to disclose those, and there was a lot of pressure put on us during the moment of truth. Many, many moments of truth. And it was a test, in a sense. And there were a few, if I remember correctly, who said, that's it. Uh, Yeah, I did this thing, and I didn't record it uh, when I was enlisting. I want to go home. (laughs) And that was the thing. They were supposed to be, there was no repercussions if they admitted, if we admitted to things that we had done that we had not disclosed to our recruiter. Well, David, in some ways, is at this moment, it's a crossroads for him. It's a test for him. He could have in order to maintain the appearance of one being fully in control and having complete knowledge about his kingdom, he could have said that Adonijah was acting according to his command. Why, yes, of course, I'm the one who told Adonijah to do this. It's fully under the auspices of my command. After all, what would it have mattered to him who became king after him? He could have simply claimed that he didn't remember making such an oath to Bathsheba about Solomon and gone with the situation that had been handed to him. But as we see in our passage this morning, David passes the test. He is wisely decisive in his moment of truth. He jumps immediately into action. David saw the hand of the Lord in this. He recognized that just as Nathan had intervened before when David had sinned against Bathsheba, so Nathan, along with Bathsheba, has intervened again. As we work our way through the sermon, I would ask you to consider this thought. The Lord redeemed David to ensure that David's future son would come to redeem sinners like you and me. Again, the Lord redeemed David 
to ensure that David's future son would come to redeem sinners like you and me. The sermon has three points. The first, as Yahweh lives. The second, fulfilling the oath. And the third, the king anointed. Again, as Yahweh lives, that's the first point. The second, fulfilling the oath. The third, the king anointed. So let's look at the first point of the sermon this morning, as Yahweh lives. As we said, Bathsheba has left the room when Nathan came in. And in verse 28, David calls her back into the room. And she came and she stood before the king. When she first came before the king, initially when she came to tell him what was going on with Adonijah, she first she bowed down before the king. She, she prostrated herself before him to show him honor. Here she stands. Now David is a blur of activity. Before he was an enfeebled old man who could barely rise out of his bed. And he swears an oath beginning in verse 29. He uses very similar words to the ones Bathsheba reminded him of back in 17. Although he modifies the words a bit. In essence, he is making this restatement of the oath a new oath. He says in verses 29 and 30, As Yahweh lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. So Even so, I will do this day. Now, J.P. Fockelman, in his commentary, points out in this passage, that the oath that David takes in verses 29 and 30, it falls at the very center of a chiasm that is formed by verses 5 to 53, which is the whole account there in chapter 1 of 1 Kings of Adonijah's rise and fall and Solomon being anointed as the king. The, The author of 1 Kings has placed David's oath here in verses 29 and 30 in the central, the most important spot of this story. Now, some of you may be familiar with chiasms in literature, and some of you might have first heard of it when Dr. Beale was here a month and a half ago. But what is a chiasm? For those of us who aren't familiar with that, a definition of a chiasm or chiasmus is, is, is that it's a two or more part sentence or phrase where the second part is a mirror image of the first. This does not mean that the second part mirrors the same exact words that appear in the first, but rather that concepts and parts of speech are mirrored. The word chiasmus derives from the Greek word for crossing or X-shaped. Now, Sometimes in a literary chiasm, there's a phrase in the middle that has no mirror image. That is the center point of the chiasm, and that is exactly what David's oath is in this passage. It is the center point. It is at the crossing point of the X. The oath is what the, the author of 1 Kings wants you to see as the most important thing that takes place in this passage. The structure of a chiasm directs you to the center. It takes you to the center point. As we mentioned a few weeks back, the original making of this oath to Bathsheba, it isn't recorded in Scripture, but that doesn't mean that it was just made up on the spot. It doesn't mean that Bathsheba simply uh, made it up or Nathan helped her to make it up. There's no reason to think that that's the case. First Chronicles 22 gives the account of the Lord telling David that he would not build the temple, but instead the task would fall to David's son Solomon. Why wouldn't David tell his wife, Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, that her son is going to be the next king? Of course he would tell her. And he told her by swearing an oath. So when Bathsheba reminded David of his oath, she told him that he swore to her by Yahweh his God. Now, as David restates it in our passage, he says, As I swore to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel. 
He doesn't limit Yahweh just to being his God, Yahweh my God. He says, Yahweh the God of Israel. And in putting Israel here instead of himself, as one commentator puts it, David means to say that Solomon's succession is not purely a private concern, but a question of national interest above all else, and that it falls under the guardianship of God. God wants Solomon on the throne for his own purposes, for his own plan, for his desired outcome. And so when David says that Yahweh has delivered his soul out of every adversity, he most certainly is including this latest one. He's expressing gratitude for the fact that the Lord sent the prophet Nathan and his wife Bathsheba to intervene. If they had not come when they did, he would not have been able to succeed in this. All would have fallen apart. But of course, David's also referring to all of the other times in his life when the Lord had saved him. David knows that the Lord over and over again has pulled him out of the fire. The Lord has saved his bacon a number of times. Of course, it's kosher bacon, but the Lord has saved. He saved him. He knows that it's just happened again. As long as what he plans, what he hopes will happen next goes smoothly. And after David gives his promise to Bathsheba, she bowed her face to the ground and paid homage to David and said, May my Lord King David live forever. Now that's an interesting thing for her to say to her husband, who is just a matter of time, just a, a, perhaps a few weeks, a few months away from his death. May my Lord King David live forever. This is an ex- implicit acknowledgement that David will live forever through his son Solomon through Solomon's son, ultimately through his offspring who will save the human race from sin and death. Bathsheba believes the promise. She knows of the promise that God made to David. She believes it. She trusts in it. And so David had promised Bathsheba that their son Solomon would sit on the throne of David after him. And now he has promised her again, and now he's got to take action. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, fulfilling the oath. Verse 32 says, King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. And so they came before the king. David knows that he has to bring more people into the effort to anoint Solomon as king, and he's got to move very quickly. If Adonijah does become king as he is attempting, David knows that Adonijah is going to reject him. And David's line will, in effect, die out. One commentator writes, David lives on in Solomon, but Adonijah's rule could only have meant a break with the past, a disgrace to David's name. If Adonijah comes to power as king, it's through rebellion, it's through a coup. He will reject his father. And so the only way to preserve the Davidic line is to ensure that Solomon sits on the throne. So David has to fulfill the oath that he has just taken again. But he needs assistance. He can't do it by himself. So he calls for Zadok the priest. He calls for Nathan the prophet. He calls for Benaiah. who was over the Carathites and the Pelethites. David's personal battalions, his personal guards. David needs wise and strong men to help him. And these men get to share in fulfilling the oath that David has just taken. Once these men arrived, David told them, beginning in verse 33, to take his servants and have Solomon ride on David's mule down to the Gihon Springs. You remember the Gihon Springs? This was where David and his men first got into the stronghold of Jerusalem and conquered it. 
At the Gehan Springs, Zadok and Nathan are to anoint Solomon, and the trumpet, or the shofar, is to be blown, and everyone there is to cry out, Long live, live King Solomon. Afterwards, they're to come back up into, into Jerusalem, and Solomon will sit on David's throne and be king in David's place. Now, as many of you know, it's one thing to take an oath or a vow. It's another thing to actually keep it. For those of you who've been married for any length of time, newlyweds, you guys are excluded. You don't count, okay? It's easy for you to keep your your vows of, of marriage. For those of you who've been married for, let's say, 10 years, let's say 20 years, let's say 30 years, it can be challenging to keep those vows. Things happen. Minds wander, eyes wander. You know how challenging it is. You know that you need help in keeping those vows. David knows that in order to keep this oath, he's got to have help. And when David finishes speaking, when he commands these men to do these things for him, in verses 36 and 37, Benaiah says, Amen, may Yahweh, the God of my Lord Lord the King, say so. As Yahweh has been with my Lord the King, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. Benaiah, essentially speaking for all three men who were there present with David, is pledging their support of David's plan and of Solomon. And they want Solomon to be an even greater king than David, which is no doubt David's desire as well. But even more than that, Solomon must succeed David as king because it was the will of God that the Messiah would come through David's and Solomon's line. It is for that reason that it will infallibly happen. That brings us to the third and the final point of the sermon today, the king anointed. In verses 38 to 40, David's plan for having Solomon anointed king is carried out. Zadok, Nathan, and Benaiah, along with the battalions of the Carathites and the Pelathites, they escorted Solomon down from Jerusalem to the springs at Gehan. This is not a very great distance. It's down, uh, down a hill into a valley where the springs were. And Solomon rode on David's mule, which signified his succession as king. And when they arrived at Gehan, Zadok the priest, who had brought the horn of oil from the tabernacle, that tabernacle that was going to be replaced once Solomon was uh, enthroned as king, He brought the horn of oil from the tabernacle. He poured oil from it onto the head of Solomon, thus anointing him king. And when this was done, the trumpets blew, and all of the people said, Long live King Solomon. And the author writes in verse 40, And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. Now that's figurative language. I don't think we need to, to interpret that literally, that the earth was split by the noise. Ears were split. It was very loud. And as we'll see in the next passage, the noise the people made after Solomon was anointed and during his ascent back up into Jerusalem was so loud that it disrupted Adonijah's feast. Joab, who was with Adonijah, he wanted to know what all of the commotion was. What's going on out there? This is, it's uncertain exactly where En-Rogel was, where Adonijah was having his big banquet. But some scholars think that it was on the west side of the Kidron Valley, opposite Uh, of where the Gehan Springs are. You can imagine the thunderous echoes of the people's shouts as they bounced back and forth across the valley. You can see now why Joab is alarmed. Well, the anointing of Solomon as king is the turning point for him as well as for Adonijah. 
for whom from here on out everything falls apart. Adonijah was feeling pretty good about things. But now it's over. For Solomon, his ascent into Jerusalem and his ascendancy to the throne are matched by his ever-increasing renown. Solomon will succeed in carrying out the task that God has denied David, but instead had given to him. He would build the temple in Jerusalem. The tabernacle would be mothballed. The parts of it would be reused, repurposed in the temple. Solomon's wisdom would become so well known throughout the region of the eastern Mediterranean that people would come to him from all over seeking his counsel. Solomon, whose name means peaceful, would usher in a period of peace that stood in contrast to his father's years and years of war. And yet, even though Solomon was rightly anointed, he would be duly crowned as king of Israel and Judah, he was still a placeholder. He was still just a steward of the throne for a son who would come long after he had died. Even Solomon, as great and highly regarded as he was, he was not God's forever king, whose throne God would establish forever. But God, despite Solomon's many flaws, despite all of the sins and the transgressions that he would commit during his life, God orchestrated Solomon's ascent to the throne because he had ordained that the Messiah would come through him. The Messiah would descend from David through Solomon, not Adonijah. And that is because, as the Heidelberg Catechism answer one puts it, God also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. God ordained it, and God orchestrated it, and God called it to be fulfilled, this promise that, that the, the oath that he made that Solomon would be king. Why? For your salvation. So that King Jesus would come forth from David through Solomon. He did it for you and for me. God works all things for the salvation of his elect, his people. Just as he redeemed David's soul again and again out of every adversity, so he redeems sinners like you and me. And so as you go through trials and adversity, as you go through major setbacks in your life, whether it's the loss of a job, whether, whether it's, it's a failure of, of your physical abilities, whether your mind starts to slip, remind yourself that God is using those trials, that adversity, to bring about his ultimate purpose in your life, the salvation of your soul. Back in 1 Chronicles 22, that passage we re-read, we've read it before, we've read it again. Back in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, the passage we read there. We read about how the son, the king who would come after David, how when he sinned, the Lord was going to correct him. We know that Jesus never sinned. There's, there's never a, a recorded instance of Christ having sinned during his life because it simply did not happen. It wasn't that the authors were conveniently excluding those incidents. He never sinned. But he was punished for sin. Most certainly, his father brought the, the wrath, the rod of his wrath, down upon his back 
for sins. But sins that were not his own. Sins that he took on as his own. Your sins and my sins. He died for our sins. He died so that you and I would reign with him forever. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, then right now, already, you reign with him. And sin no longer reigns in your bodies. You have been given the ability to overcome, and you have overcome. You are living a resurrected life because God has caused you by His Spirit to be born again. And that is good news, brothers and sisters. That is good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for the way in which we can read about the unfolding of your perfect plan in history. We thank you for the way in which by your spirit you enlivened David. You caused him, at least it appears, to leap forth from his bed and take action one last time. We are thankful that you caused, you brought about the succession of Solomon to the throne and that you thwarted the plans of Adonijah. You did it, O oh Lord, for our salvation. You did it so that your precious people would have a Savior who came from David through Solomon. So that your forever king would sit on the throne of the forever kingdom. We are grateful for your most wise plan. We are thankful that it is infallible that it will inevitably and invariably be carried out. And we're thankful, O Lord, that it is intended for your glory and for our good. We pray this in the name of our Savior, our King, Christ Jesus. Amen.